If there's one issue that hasn't necessarily fallen along traditional partisan lines, it's President Donald Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs. It's prompted some Democrats to speak out strongly, including U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill. For every trade war that starts, um, it's not just the first salvo, it's the reaction. But while some Republicans have joined Democrats like McCaskill in criticizing the tariffs, others have not. That includes McCaskill's GOP opponent, Attorney General Josh Hawley. The Chinese in particular have systematically attempted to rig the international trade system to build their middle class on the backs of ours. That is just a fact. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Rachel Lippman and I break down the tariff issue's effect on the 2018 election cycle. We'll also analyze one of the major ballot initiatives that'll be up for a statewide vote in Missouri, an increase to the minimum wage. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joe Manis is off this week, so we have as our special host today. Trying to keep up, Rachel Lippman. Thank you for, for joining us. And before we talk about the topics at hand, I know that you've been working, along with Kay Petrin, on some stories about Paul McKee. And I want to give you a little bit of an opportunity to plug those for our, our tens and tens of listeners. <laughs> yeah, so Kay and I have taken the opportunity to dive down the rabbit hole that is the uh, Paul McKee project and sort of crawl into all of the different little paths that we can find. And the first thing that we decided to tackle was sort of the accountability piece of this. We know that in development agreements between the city and any developer, there are always these benchmarks that you have to hit, whether they are development deadlines. Uh, in the case of this Northside Regeneration Project, there were a whole bunch of things that McKee had to sort of provide to the city because I think of the scope of this project. This is uh, covering almost two square miles of North St. Louis, kind of roughly from Cass and Jefferson north to, I never remember the northern boundary of this development, but then out sort of towards the... um, the new Stan Musial Veterans Memorial Bridge, kind of in that area over there, including the old Pruitt-Igo site, including what will be the home of the new National Geospatial Intelligence Agency headquarters. So because of that scope, there were other things that McKee had to do within this development. There were property maintenance plans. He had to keep up a database of properties that he owned. And what Kay found as part of their investigation is that This database did exist, but it was never made publicly available to the city. Um, The ombudsman, who he was supposed to appoint as sort of the the point person to deal with complaints from neighbors, she has been appointed, but it was never clear what her role was going to be. So it seems like he always would kind of creep up to doing the bare minimum of what he needed to do to meet the the letter of this requirement, not necessarily the spirit. I I think that the general consensus about the Northside Project in 2018 is what what do we have to show for it almost 15 years later, because I think the discussions about this started off in the mid-2000s. I remember covering Mm -hmm. the land assemblage tax credit bill in 2007, and I I drive around that footprint all the time, and I don't see much to show for it. Some of it might be the fault of lawsuits, but in the end, those lawsuits are over, and I just don't see a lot of 
progress there. So mostly what uh, has happened is that the NGA site is cleared. That's the sort of north uh, east corner of Cass and Jefferson, roughly. Um, you have the gas station and convenience store underway. That took a little bit to get going. And they're keeping these conversations about putting sort of a three-bed urgent care hospital on the pruitt Igo site, which is the southeast corner of Cass and Jefferson, right across from fire department headquarters. And that's part of the reason that the city is trying to unwind itself from this deal with McKee, which is complicated by the fact that um, long story short, go read the story in a requirement in order to get the NGA site uh, ready to go. They had to sign this sort of separate second agreement with McKee that undid a lot of the deadlines and all sorts of other stuff. And it's going to be a fight in court as to what actually applies. Well, read both Rachel and Kay's stories on that. I highly recommend it. I'm glad that we got at least three minutes to, to plug those stories. What I wanted to talk about today as far as issues is is. President Donald Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs, which is an issue that has not necessarily featured reaction along traditional party partisan lines. For our listeners who haven't really been paying attention, a few months ago, President Trump announced that he was going to enact steel and aluminum tariffs on a host of countries. Since that point, um, there's been retaliation by other countries. There have been instances where, uh, according to President Trump, steel and aluminum production has has bumped up. And he was actually in Granite City, Illinois, about a month ago, mm-hmm. uh, talking about why he ended up doing this particular move. This is the time to straighten out the worst trade deals ever made by any country on Earth ever in history. These deals were made by people I don't know if they didn't understand or if they didn't care or if they didn't frankly love our country. But we have the worst trade deals ever made in history. But now they're becoming good again. And I talked to a bunch of steel workers who feel like they're going to eventually benefit from these tariffs. The idea being that if it's more expensive to import steel, then there's going to be a pickup of domestic steel production. Mm -hmm. One of them is William Mullen, who talked about not only how it will help him, but help places like Granite City, Illinois. Oh, it can't do anything but help. Just the short time that I've lived here, you know, it's a a city that was once way up here, and now it's, you know, about halfway down. We've had, you know, a lot of downtime because of the lack of production. And I think now it just it can't do anything but get better and get back to that level that it once was. Rachel, both you and I have covered the Metro East, and it kind of ranges from being like bedroom communities like Belleville to some really economically challenged areas. And more blue collar and along the lines of Granite City, where industry sort of is, is the big driving factor and you sort of ebb and flow on industry. And I think, you know, what, what to me politically will be interesting to see is... Um, First of all, there are a lot of people out there who are getting hurt by the tariffs. The steel industry is obviously being helped. And and so Granite City was able to restart one of its blast furnaces. That's obviously bringing people like Mr. Mullen back to work. The more people you have working in Granite City, going out to lunches in the restaurants there, breakfasts in the restaurants there, the more money you're pumping into that economy. But there have also been businesses that have been hit by the tariffs. I know Senator McCaskill likes to emphasize that nail factory uh, in other parts of Missouri 
that is going out of business because they can't get the money that they need. And the two things that are going to be interesting is um, you've heard a lot on NPR of people who are saying, yeah, we're hurt now, but we think it will eventually work out and balance. Do those people see that actually work out for them? Like, do things improve? Do they continue to trust that he knows what he's doing? And then do the tariffs start to hit the American people? Do they start to bite into your paycheck? And how does that sort of, of play out in the elections? Now, not all the tariffs have kicked in. They kick in in waves. You, you mentioned Senator McCaskill, who has been critical of the tariffs, and we'll hear from her in a minute. But some Republicans have also been very critical, especially Republicans that live in states with a lot of agriculture, because agriculture has been hit particularly by China um, because they have retaliated after these tariffs. U.S. Senator Roy Blunt made these comments in early March, right around the time the tariffs were announced. This is what he had to say about that. We only import about 16 percent of our steel, and almost all of that comes from our allied friends. So I just don't think it's a good idea. I said that in a public meeting with the president that was televised about two weeks ago that, look, Mr. President, you're going you're gonna to impact everything from bass boats to beer cans here. Uh, we make some steel in Missouri. We make some aluminum in Missouri. But we buy a lot more of it than we make. Uh, and there are a lot more people in the jobs that take steel and aluminum and make something out of them than there are in the jobs that make steel and aluminum. And I just don't think it's a good idea. The retaliation almost always first at uh, our, our greatest export, uh, which is uh, commodities and food products. And interestingly, uh, Senator McCaskill held a round table. It's actually a square table, by the way. <laughs> um, I mean, if we want to quibble about like the the the, the shape of the table, we're, we're quibbling. A, we're quibbling right, there. We're quibbling. And, so and, she held a square table. And, and interestingly, it. a couple of representatives made bass boats and beer cans. Somebody from Anheuser Busch and another company that made bass boats in Southwest Missouri. I would strongly believe that that's deliberate. And and I, and and take a listen to what Senator McCaskill had to say after this square table meeting. Well, the most important industry in Missouri is agriculture. And listening to uh, the farmers that were here today and listening to the companies that are part of the agricultural economy that are here today, it's a grave concern for our state. Um, uh, if you add up the number of employees represented around this table with manufacturing and agriculture, if you add up the economic activity, we're talking about billions of dollars of loss in Missouri. Billions. What has struck me about this is how similar the verbiage ha between Blunt and McCaskill has been. Now, as time has gone on, like when there was like a $12 billion relief package for farmers, I think Senator Blunt generally reacted pretty favorably to that. Um, but do you think it matters to voters that maybe McCaskill and Blunt have basically the same position on this, or is this just not going to necessarily resonate with people that are being bombarded with billions of dollars of TV ads? Again, I think it'll matter if it begins to hit them in the pocketbook, if the price of the stuff that they buy every day to feed their families starts to go up because of these tariffs. And it's not, you know, Blunt and McCaskill not running against each other um, may kind of help damp down the fact that they agree with each other. Blunt's not on the ballot and McCaskill is on the ballot. And what's interesting to me is that this is sort of a version of the rural-urban divide. 
And you hear a lot about that in terms of like, oh, well, the urban centers are a little bit more Democratic and the rural areas are a little bit more Republican. Well, this is sort of a divide kind of among rural urban business in in a sort of way that agriculture is something that is being impacted, generally happens in more rural areas. But production of steel and aluminum is benefiting by this. That's sort of more an old industrial areas. And how does that sort of of play out? And does that benefit? You've commented a lot of times, Jason, McCaskill's going to need rural votes to win. How does that end up playing out? Now, it would I would be remiss not to play a clip from Attorney General Josh Hawley, who's running against McCaskill. He's been asked many times about his opinion on the tariffs. This is kind of one of the examples of him responding. I think that the president going out there and saying he wants to get better trade deals for our farmers, wants to actually fight for our farmers. Because look, farmers know, and they say this to me, by the way, when I talk to them, I talk to farmers all the time across our state, and they say over and over, we have gotten the short end of the stick on trade for years, not just with China, but also with the EU and Mexico and Canada in many instances. So I think the president saying this needs to stop is exactly right. So it's interesting that a lot of agriculture groups have raised alarm about the tariffs, but they're all endorsing Josh Hawley's campaign, including the Missouri Farm Bureau. I had a story for NPR with a reporter from Wisconsin Public Radio that featured a clip from Blake Hurst talking about how soybeans have just been rocked by these tariffs. So I guess my question is, you may have like individual people affected But if the groups that are advocating for them are telling those represented farmers and and whatnot to vote for Josh Hawley, how do you think that's going to play out? Well, I mean, we say this in connection to all sorts of endorsements. A group saying you should vote for an individual saying you should vote for X, Y or Z candidate doesn't result in necessarily their farmers, their union members, their supporters going out and doing it. Um, It goes back to, I think, how does it end up working out for each of these individual farmers? If the retaliatory tariffs do eventually get the two parties to the two countries to the negotiating table and a deal works out where trade is improved enough to make up for the losses in the retaliatory tariffs, then maybe, you know, Hawley's correct there. But there's also other things at work, too, in terms of overall policy and direction for agriculture. There's regulation for clean water, regulation for use of pesticides, other chemicals, where I think that sort of is, you know, also motivating this endorsement for Holly. Sure, the amount of money that you make and comes in is one thing, but regulations on doing business is also kind of another thing that they consider. And generally speaking, the Republican line of thought is reduce the regulations, reduce the regulatory burden on these farmers and the other businesses, make it easier for them to do their jobs. And now it's time for Politically Speaking's election analysis, where we break down what will be on your ballot on November 6th. This week, we're going to be looking at Proposition B, which would raise Missouri's minimum wage to $12 an hour by 2023. It's a gradual increase. My understanding, it would go up by, I think, about 85 cents a year Mm -hmm. until it gets to $12 by 2023. And then it would go up by, I guess, rate of inflation. Right now, Missouri does have like an inflation escalator. So you do see the minimum wage sometimes automatically increasing by 20 or 30 cents every year. And this is actually the second time in my professional 
uh, political journalism career, I've seen a minimum wage ballot increase on the Missouri ballot. In 2006, there was one raising, I think, from 525 to 725 an hour. And it's now at what, eight something, uh, seven something? It, it's it's in the high sevens. Okay. And um, there, there, the interesting thing about that particular contest was there was no organized opposition because it, in many business groups' view, going from like 525 to 725, well, I'm sure it wasn't painless to some industries. I don't think it was seen as like a particularly huge leap. This situation is raising the minimum wage by significantly more. And it's nearly not happening in a vacuum. Rachel and I have been following the movement to increase the minimum wage in St. Louis for many years. And people like Rasheen Aldridge, who is the 5th District, uh, 5th Ward Democratic Committeeman. Uh, See, that... I, I go the opposite way. I'm convinced that everything is wards. You're convinced everything is districts. You well, can tell which of us covers what more. Yeah, basically. <laughs> he, he had this to say about how this ballot initiative will be beneficial to workers in St. Louis. This is very important. Like people's lives are, depend on this. And um, having conversations even back then, even all the way up to now, it's, it's still a life and death between if it's going to be electricity or if it's going to be um, rent for some folks. So uh, it's important that we get as many people out on this minimum wage that we got out on the right to work um, issue and that we inform them that this is honestly a make or break for people. And I think it's going to also, like I say, benefit the senator and her her bid as well. We talked about the political implications of the minimum wage ballot initiative on another show. We also talked about how some of the money going to this initiative is undisclosed. I, I wanted to ask you, Rachel, because you cover the Board of Aldermen a lot. This is an issue that came up the Board of Aldermen yes. a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was an effort by uh, Mayor Slay. He was the one who sort of introduced this, carried at the Board of Aldermen by Shane Cohn in the 25th Ward, which actually would have increased the minimum wage in the city of St. Louis by uh, to 15 by, I think, 2020. I can't remember what the ramp was, but it was a pretty significant increase. Went through a ton of different court battles. Um, actually, like the m political machinations to keep this thing on track in terms of passing it when they needed to was pretty incredible. There was a lot of sort of maneuvering. The chair of the committee that it went through was opposed to the idea. He held it in committee. They, I think, had to use a procedural motion to kick it out of committee. There were all sorts of different shenanigans. Supreme Court eventually ruled that the city of St. Louis had the authority to pass a higher minimum wage than the state minimum wage. They said basically that the state minimum wage is a floor. It means you can't go below it, but cities can then go above that. And the General Assembly decided to kind of nullify that ruling by saying no city can approve a higher minimum wage than this than the state minimum wage of, in the high sevens. And if you ask activists who are pushing for this, they'll say that the General Assembly's action is one of the impetuses behind mm -hmm. this. Frankly, and kind of hypocritical in a lot of ways too, like small government, local control, unless and until we don't like the policy behind it. But, but, fran but frankly, as I've said on another show. There are a lot of minimum wage increases that get put on statewide ballots where there's also a competitive U.S. Senate race. This has been a strategy for many years. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with this strategy. Like Republicans also put things on the ballot to gin up turnout. Or but, to tamp down turnout. But, or, but, yeah. but, but we need to be candid about mm -hmm. what's going on of here. They're, 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 that's probably the reason you're seeing a lot of national money flowing into this contest. Now, there hasn't been organized opposition to this quite yet. It's still somewhat early 
and there could end up being a group that says don't vote for this. But there are clearly people that aren't necessarily in favor of this policy. This is actually a clip from then Lieutenant Governor Parson back in January before he became Governor Parson. <laughs> and I doubt his views have changed a whole lot since he was elevated. I, so I don't think so. I know back in 2006, there really wasn't a huge effort to oppose the last minimum wage hike. What's kind of your, your take on, on yeah, I don't, I don't think we need to be setting a minimum wage for the state of Missouri. And a perfect example of that, when we all started talking about minimum wage, people were paying seven, eight bucks an hour for people. If you go about anywhere in the state of Missouri, and I've traveled it over 200 stops in this year, last year, yeah. wages now for a convenience store, a, a fast food place is now $10 an hour. Mm. So it's going up on their own. And you see that all over the state of Missouri, where the, where the supply and demand, and people are going back to work, and people are paying for good employees. Now, I'm sure that there's examples of people that are making less than $10 an hour in the service industry. But I think what, what then-Lieutenant Governor Parson was saying is wages are kind of going up mm -hmm. beyond seven eighty-five, dollars kind of naturally. And I think one of the reasons why this may not get a huge amount of opposition as far as like people putting in money to defeat it is by 2023, $12 yeah. an hour may not be that right. burdensome. Like what is the in, and what is the inflation going to be? Is it even going to be a living wage, $12 an hour? Is it even a living wage now to begin with? And will it be a living wage in 2023 when you have five years of inflation to 3% inflation on top of that? Is $12 going to be worth, you know, the equivalent of Seven eighty-five or 8 or $10 an hour. Who knows? But by the way, this is a fun fact. I actually did a calculation on my phone, and I found out that when I was working for the Columbia Daily Tribune from 2006 to 2008, I was making $1.65 an hour more than $12 an hour. Yeah, welcome welcome to the world of your first journalism job. On Thursday, U.S. Senator Claire McCaskill was at a restaurant in South St. Louis, and one of the issues that she was talking about was her support for Proposition B. So this is not a shock to the system of small business owners, but it is a shot in the arm for all of the people that work at minimum wage. And make no mistake about it, this is not just a few people. I think people like to kind of gloss over this and say, well, nobody works at minimum wage. We have almost 100,000 parents in Missouri working for minimum wage. And uh, she challenged Holly to take a position on this. And coincidentally, Holly was in South St. Louis that same day. Standing on his debate trailer, if I remember. He, he was. He talked about a lot of topics. And, and McCaskill also talked about more topics than just the minimum wage, too. But this was his response in a, in a gaggle after he made a speech to GOP volunteers. You know, I think a minimum wage increase is probably a good idea. Uh, I'm not so sure that the one that's on the ballot this fall is a good idea. Uh, I'm worried that it will, uh, that it may result in actually lost jobs. Uh, I haven't made up my mind on it, but I, I think it's, it is a little bit uh, different than most. It's, it, it's a little bit out of the mainstream in terms of the types of wage increases you see. But I think increase in the minimum wage is probably a good idea. But I think we ought to do more than that. I think we ought to be actually working to raise wages that will raise every wage. Again, I, I think that Joe and I actually discussed this a little bit earlier. I think we're kind of torn about like what effect this is going to have on, on the Senate race. I mean, it could hypothetically increase turnout in urban areas or even rural areas that support the minimum wage because, as Senator McCaskill pointed out, there are probably a lot of places in rural Missouri where wages aren't super high. But if there's no organized opposition to it and it's just sort of going to pass by default, 
I'm not sure how effective of a turnout mechanism it will be. There have been other examples where it was on the ballot, it passed, and it had no effect on a Senate race. Well, the question is, does it turn into something like Proposition A, where they want, which was the the anti-right to work measure in, in August? Do they want it to pass by a wide enough margin that the General Assembly doesn't come in and reverse it? Do they want to basically say, you are putting your seat at risk you know, Republicans who may support keeping the minimum wage lower or not raising it up to $12 an hour, you're putting your seat at risk if you attempt to try and reverse it. I don't know if that's something that the uh, General Assembly would, would kind of move to do. And also, it's an issue that matters to a lot of voters that aren't necessarily naturally McCaskill supporters. A lot of the sort of, you know, progressive Bernie wing of the party don't necessarily, you know, they they don't want the seat to go to Hawley necessarily, but they're not thrilled with McCaskill. Can the groups turn it into the, hey, if you are supporting the minimum wage increase, we also need your help in this Senate race? Are they able to connect that vote in the way they were able to connect the anti-right-to-work vote to Wesley Bell in the August primary and say, hey, if you're already voting for X, let's vote for Y as well? And, and you know, there was a lot of national attention when uh, right to work was voted down by a huge margin a couple of weeks ago. I think some national observers were like, whoa, a state that voted for Donald Trump by 20 points is rejecting right to work. This is crazy. Although I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I, I could see you a mean, sit- You mean they completely missed what's going on in flyover country? I'm uh, shocked if there's well, gambling in this establishment. Well, <laughs> you know, I could see a scenario where like this ends up passing and there could be think pieces galore about, well, you know, progressive policies seem to be taking hold in deep red Missouri. I'm not really sure that that would be the case, given that in 2006, this passed, I think, in most of the counties, including Mm -hmm. the rural ones. This does seem to have like general support among everyday people. I'm not sure if you can necessarily extrapolate anything, but what do you think would be the message if Missouri does end up raising the minimum wage to $12 an hour? Again, I mean, it's 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 that number. I go back to the twelve dollar an hour number. If the minimum wage is you know seven eighty five, and as McCa- as uh, I, uh, uh, Holly pointed out, a lot of places are already at ten. I can't remember who said that. A lot Parson. of pla- Parson pointed out that a lot of the places are already at ten dollars an hour. If you are paying ten dollars an hour, inflation, generally speaking, you're going to be up in the eleven dollar range by the time you hit twenty twenty three. An extra dollar an hour is a little bit easier than an extra you know doing quick math for twenty five an hour per person if you are paying the minimum wage of 785. So, you know, in rural areas it might be more of a jump that might be where more of the impact is, but then also that's where people are probably like, "Hey, I want a little bit more money in my pocket." So, I'm going to vote on on my interest on getting more money in my pocket in gas money, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The other thing to consider, too, is there's a gas tax on the ballot as well. How much, if you increased gas tax, does that wipe out some of what the minimum wage is? Like, how do all of these sort of start to play into each other? And does it basically end up at net zero for the individuals? We'll be talking about that initiative in the coming weeks. I do want to provide a little bit of an update to the topic we talked about last week. Four charter amendments that ended up being passed by the county council did make it past the legislative finish line this week. Three were were signed by County Executive Steve Stanger. That's one to cap contribution limits, one to put financial information online, and one to make it harder to sell or give away parkland. Another one that would give the county council significantly more power over the budget was vetoed, but the council overrode that. 
The interesting procedural quirk about this, though, was that Stenger didn't act on this until pretty late on Tuesday afternoon. And I think that there was a five o'clock deadline that they had to go to the Board of Elections. And that deadline was missed. So the council is actually going to have to go to court and get a court order for this to be put on the ballot. From talking with Councilman Sam Page and, and, and others, and also Eric Fay, the mm-hmm. elections director, I don't think it's particularly difficult nah. to get something on the on the ballot. And I think th- it, it probably will end up going before county voters. But it it certainly made for some uh, interesting procedural drama. I mean, the, the ballots aren't printed yet. This is just more sort of like you can't be waiting until they, they had to set some deadline in order to not have something be on a ballot like a week before. There was also a ballot initiative. I think it was the soccer, the the, uh, the development, right. the economic development tax where the use tax portion of it would go to the soccer stadium if it was approved. That technically missed the deadline, but the judge was just kind of like ballots haven't been printed yet, whatever. It's sort of if you're this far removed from the election and you're missing the deadline by an hour, yes, you've missed the deadline, but it wasn't all on the county council, basically. You know, they couldn't act until Stanger Act, and obviously Stanger deliberately waited to miss the deadline to add that extra step. Anytime you add uncertainty into it, like you can't guarantee it. But I think Eric Fay's right and Sam Page is right. I don't think I don't think Stanger has outright said he did it deliberately, but you know, he he and the county council aren't really good friends right now. So you can draw your own conclusions. Thank you, Rachel, for joining me. And we'll be back next week with another election roundup for all of our stories at stealpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Rachel on Twitter at... At our Lipman, two Ps, two Ns. See you later and have a great Labor Day weekend.